0: My friends, so today is Pentecost and I personally find that it's this transformation of the first disciples of Jesus that happens on this day of Pentecost to be one of the most convincing proofs of the resurrection of Jesus. I don't know how else you can explain how this group of disciples goes from being terrified and hiding out in a room to boldly proclaiming that their friend and savior and teacher, Jesus, had risen from the dead and was now the king of the universe. At the expense of their lives and their reputation, these disciples found a new boldness from the Holy Spirit that changes the world. It's that filling of the Holy Spirit that ignites the disciples to move out in mission, proclaiming that Jesus had indeed been raised from the dead and was now the risen king who is reconciling all things to himself. That Jesus now is sending them out on mission. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are two instances in which Jesus sends out his disciples. And this morning, we're going to look at both of those. Uh, Starting, though, in Matthew chapter 9, it says, "...Jesus traveled among all the cities and villages, teaching in in their synagogues, and, and announcing the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness." Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were troubled and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the size of the harvest is bigger than you can imagine, but there are few workers. Therefore plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for his home harvest. And so we need to pause right there and just point out that outside of the Lord's prayer, Jesus does not often tell us the sorts of things that we should pray for. And so as Jesus tells the disciples here, you need to pray for this. We should sit up. We should take notice. Jesus looks around at the crowds around him. He has compassion on them and moved by love and compassion for these hurting people who need healing and the good news that the kingdom of heaven has come he looks at his disciples and he says pray to the father and ask for more people to help in this work we have work to do please ask the father for more workers and then starting in chapter 10 verse 1 he called his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw them out and to heal every disease and every sickness here are the names of the 12 apostles first simon who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, Canaan, and Judas who betrayed Jesus. So Jesus says, go to the Father and ask for workers for the harvest. And then rather suddenly, the disciples find themselves sent out as the answer to their very own prayer. Jesus says, pray to the Father that there would be workers for the harvest. And then the disciples are sent Rather suddenly, isn't it? Uh, One of the things that that we notice, I want to just quickly point out, is that these 12 disciples or apostles, in this case, I do not believe that this is a special or unique calling or sending for them. This call to Jesus, to the disciples to go and do the ministry of the kingdom is not limited to 12. Uh, Partly, I think this because in Luke 10, where we hear essentially the same story, Jesus sends out 72, not 12. And so The number here is symbolic of something else that Matthew is trying to say. This is not limiting. It is for all of us who follow Jesus. We are all called to participate in the mission of God. Now, when we talk about missions, unfortunately, there's a lot of negative baggage that comes with the word now. There is a tie between church and state, the work of colonialization that has happened over the last few hundred years that is unfortunate and it is uncomfortable and it makes some people really wrestle even with the idea or the word of mission. So in 1907, there was a Methodist missionary uh, who was in China, and he looked around at all of the other missionaries, and he observed that they looked like walking advertisements for Western culture. Sadly, a great deal of our missionary past, our culture has been deeply interwoven into our proclaiming of the gospel. Sometimes, even, it is indistinguishable. To accept Jesus is also to accept Western culture. And I hope that now, today, we are seeing that this is pro- problematic, that the vision of the kingdom in Revelation is that there are many tribes and nations, each with their own culture, gathered around the king, worshipping him. It is not Western culture that is Christian. But uh, it, as we consider this idea of mission, I, I I don't have a better word for it. And so I, I'll just continue to say Mission, even though I recognize some of the problematic elements of that word. It's interesting, though, if you consider the, the first couple hundred years of the early church, its rapid ex- expansion, successful mission, probably, say, the first 300 years or so, basically until Constantine makes Christianity the official religion of Rome. In all of that time, as the church is growing and expanding, we only know the names of two missionaries in that whole historical period. Well, why is that? Let me suggest to you that many of us over time have accepted a view of missions that is actually radically different than the idea that the early church had as they thought about proclaiming the good news. If, like me, you grew up in the church, our vision of missions traditionally has looked something like this. It starts with a sender. Usually this is a church, or perhaps it is a mission organization, and they, they are the senders. Then there is a territory. The territory is usually somewhere far away. It is a place out there. It's a place that missionaries went to a heathen or pagan land. There were agents, and the agents were specialists. They received training. They were sent by the church or the organization to this faraway territory. And then there were normal people, ordinary Christians, who stayed at home and worked their jobs and gave to support the missions of the, or, and the sending church. And finally, the goal of missions, maybe this is put a little crassly, but the goal of missions was to bring salvation to individuals and build churches. And so one Catholic theologian proposed that mission ends when it reaches its goal of an establishment of the church in society. Now, one of the frightening repercussions of this view of missions is the way that Christians viewed their own work and their own, way, uh, their own home. If people were engaged in cross-cultural work, they were engaged in missions. But if you were doing missions, if you were close to home and telling people about Jesus, you were doing evangelism. Now, what historian Alan Kreider points out is that evangelism did not involve a critique of the worldview structures, and mores of society in light of the gospel, but urged conversion that strengthened adherence to social norms. The result was what Bishop Leslie Newbegin calls an illegitimate alliance with false elements in culture. So it's this view that what happens out there is missions, and our culture here is Christian and good. And so when we evangelize someone, you just need to become a better Canadian, You just need to become a better citizen of this Western culture. And this is part of the reason why colonialism and mission so naturally colluded. In other words, because we were doing evangelism and not mission here, we failed to notice the ways in which the gospel critiques our worldviews our values, and instead we blindly exported them around the world, the gospel got wrapped in Western European culture, and we failed to see the ways in which our own culture are fallen and broken and bound in sin. What I would like to suggest to you today is that that classical view of missions isn't actually missions. It isn't what uh, God desires, because mission is something that God does. Many call this the Missio Day. In the, in the Missio Day, compared to where the church is the sender or an organization is the sender, in the Missio Day we believe that God himself is the sender. All through scriptures, God is ascending God. We see this in the way that God sends Jesus and sends the Holy Spirit. God is on a mission and God invites the church to come and participate in the mission of God. And so the church doesn't have a mission. Rather, the mission of God has a church. This has huge implications for us. It means that we should always expect to find God at work. Because God is a missionary God. There is no place in which God is not already present and moving. I like how Rich Villadaw says it. Any sense of mission that is faithful to Jesus begins with the presence of God. God's grace is lovingly present to the world at every moment. Any notion of mission in this world must confess that God moves first. And so missions... First and foremost is the belief, the confidence that God is already present. We do not begin with a divine absence, but with a divine presence. The task then is to enter into every situation with an alertness, a a desire to see where God has already been moving. Jesus said in John 5.19, I assure you that the Son can't do anything by himself except what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise wise. So we are sent by God who has already gone in front of us and is already working. We, like Jesus, simply need to see what the Father is doing and do what the Father is already doing. The second thing to notice, though, is that territory, in the classical view of missions, it was somewhere you went, far away, to reach an unreached people group or an unreached country. But this is a mistake, because God is the sending God, whose presence is already everywhere. The invitation is for all of us to enter into it. Let's read from Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus says to his disciples, the risen Jesus appears, and he says... Jesus came near and spoke to them, I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. Uh, One of the things to notice is that where it says, In this translation, therefore, go and make disciples. Really, the Greek is more like as you are going. As you go about your everyday life as a disciple of Jesus, as you are going, make disciples. It is not about going into another territory. It is about as you are going, as you live your life. So let me say this very clearly. Missions is not about where you go. Missions is about the posture we have as we live our lives. Let me say this again. Mission is not about where you go. Missions is about the posture we have as we live our lives. Which again has two more really important implications for us. It means that the agents of God's missions are not those who have professional training or receive their salary to do the work they do. The agents of God's mission are everyone who calls Jesus king and follow after him. You are an agent of God's mission. To ignore this call on your life is to miss out on the adventure of of paying attention to where God is working and joining in with him in his great mission to To reconcile the world. Because finally, the goal of the Missio Dei is much, much bigger than simply starting churches in places that don't have churches. The mission Jesus gave in Matthew 28 was to make disciples. Disciples are those who are living kingdom culture, who are living kingdom lives in a way that brings God's will to earth as it is in heaven. God's mission is huge. God's mission is universal. God's mission is to bring God's kingdom and redemption here on earth. God's mission is for for all of creation I could quote a lot of scriptures here um, perhaps no single book gives more to this idea of, of what is happening in Isaiah uh, more book more more ca- better captures the vision of God's mission than the book of Isaiah so you can go and read that later but but perhaps the most susten- succinct summary of the universal scope of God's plan is Colossians 1: 20 because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him and he reconciled all All things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in heaven, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. This is what has been called God's Shalom Project, God's mission to bring peace and goodness and wholeness and justice and reconciliation to all people in all spheres of our lives, our relation to creation with each other, with God and with ourselves. Alan Kreider, the Anabaptist historian, summarizes this great vision of God's mission this way. He says, evangelism is as necessary as ever. God still invites people to be at peace with the God of love. But the God of love is also a God of mission, and God's mission is broader than evangelism. There are other areas. For example, reconciling between estranged enemies, restoring justice, building community, caring for the earth, ending the arms trade, growing and distributing wholesome foods, providing safe and ecological modest transport, healing bodies and minds that are also issues of God's mission. Mission is broad as broad as the Creator's concern, as broad as the creation of which Jesus is Lord. God's mission is to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth to Jesus. I like what the Anglican Archbishop Justin Welby once said, In praying thy kingdom come, we all commit to playing our part in the renewal of the nations and the transformation of communities. The goal of God's mission is not just churches or people in pews or sheep in seats. The mission of God is the kingdom people doing kingdom work, making disciples who live in the way of King Jesus, bringing shalom and peace and justice and reconciliation wherever they find themselves. So let me summarize it like this. When we talk about mission, God is the sender. Territory is where you are. Agents are all who call Jesus king, and the goal is more of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In chapters of Matthew, chapter 8 and 9, we see that Jesus has this authority to use his compa- uh, is used, but is always used in compassion and healing for those who are sick. At the end of Matthew 9, as we read, we see that the crowds are large and that there is need for more workers who can exercise compassion for those in need. So Jesus tells his followers to pray for more people to help in this mission. And then he commissions his disciples to go and do the work. But this compassion that we have seen in these last few chapters is crucial for understanding how we live out this mission of God. To be on mission like Jesus, to be sent by Jesus, is to watch where the Father and Spirit are working ahead of us and then to engage in compassion. The Spanish theologian Josue Pagola said the church will change when we begin to look at people as Jesus did. When we look more closely at their suffering than at their sin. When we see them with eyes of mercy rather than fear. And so you and I are invited by God not just to believe what Jesus taught, but actually to do what Jesus did. Our mission is to pay attention to where people around us are suffering, to those who are in need of compassion, to posture ourselves as those who are attentive to where God is already at work and inviting us to join in. It is to view the world not like God is absent, but to pay attention. So then in Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples to cast out unclean spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. I believe that this means spiritually we are called to engage in spiritual battles. It means that we pray for healing in faith and conviction that God can and will heal people. However, it also addresses a whole other range of other things. I believe that part of this work is to engage in anything that stops human flourishing, addressing systemic injustices and racism, opposing systems of death in our society, the things that crush people or suck the life out of them. Healing people can include their physical healing, but it is also the social restoration of those who are outcast. When Jesus heals the bleeding woman, which Julia taught us about last week, he heals her physically by stopping the bleeding. He heals her spiritually by making her ritually clean again And he heals her socially by showing the crowd that this woman is no longer a sick outcast. She can be welcomed back into the community. And so to heal the sick involves all three of these aspects where we can be engaged in, in healing people physically, spiritually, and socially. To cast out demons can mean engaging in the spiritual battle of, of casting out demons, but it also means freeing people from whatever holds them bondage, whether that is addiction or political oppression. Jesus says that we he came that we may have life and life abundant. The way of Jesus is the way of liberation and freedom. It is good news to all who are poor and oppressed. But how do we live this? How do we do this? that the, the danger is that if God's mission is so big that nothing becomes mission which is why I think what I said previously about Jesus' compassion that shapes what he does is so important for us the first step to ask is what moves us to compassion this will be a good indicator of the aspect of God's mission that you are being invited into we also need to retrain ourselves That mission is not something that only a few people do when they go somewhere. We are all sent. God is sending you. So posture posture yourselves as the one who is attentive to what God is already doing and inviting you to join. We also need to understand that because God's mission of reconciliation is not limited only to saving souls for heaven, that there are many, many different ways in which each of us can participate in the mission. As Rich Villados puts it so well, We have often thought that being on mission means having to share our faith with strangers in some random location. We have incorrectly understood extroversion to be a spiritual gift that everyone must cultivate. But we need not think that this is what we signed up for. To be on mission is a multifaceted endeavor. God invites us to consider our personalities, context, and experiences, and out of who we are, discerningly participate in what he is already doing. Being on mission doesn't require us to be intrusive, awkward, and coercive. It should be a normal experience. I love how Rich encourages us to be ourselves. God is inviting you to participate in God's mission. But that doesn't mean that you suddenly have to be an extrovert who starts conversations with strangers, unless that's who you are. When we understand that God's mission is so multifaceted, we can see that we all have a place in God's mission. When we engage in social justice, in advocating for those who are oppressed, when we feed the hungry and care for the homeless, we can be engaged in the mission of God when we invite people to our church services and invite them to experience the story of God as told through our liturgy, we are engaged or can be engaged in the mission of God. When we meet people on the street and we have the opportunity to tell strangers about the transformation we experience because of Jesus, we can be engaged in the mission of God. When we have a small group that meets and builds community, we can be engaged in the mission of God. When we walk or we rock our baby in the middle of the night and we pray for the hurting and the lonely and the sick, we can be engaged in the mission of God. When we plant a garden and tend to the soil, we can be engaged in God's mission. When we work and do our jobs, with excellence to the glory of God, we can be engaged in God's mission. When we love our families well, when we show compassion to people, when we give of our finances, we can be engaged in the mission of God. What is so interesting is that when you compare Matthew's sending of the disciples to that story in Luke, when Luke's disciples come back, they're all excited and rejoicing because their mission was really successful. Matthew doesn't tell us how it went. Success doesn't seem to matter to Matthew. Instead, its emphasis is on those who follow Jesus and do the things Jesus do and follow Jesus no matter how difficult it may be. For the reward is great for those who follow Jesus. One last quick observation. This fantastic ending in Matthew 28. The very last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew. I myself will be with you Every day until the end of this present age. All of this mission, all of this work, all of this following Jesus and being his disciple, we never do alone. If you read Matthew 10, you'll see that multiple times we're told we are not alone, that the Spirit of God will speak through us, that God is watching over us, that God counts the hairs of our head, that God is with us, that we do not need to be afraid The Gospel of Matthew begins with this great word that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, and it ends with this promise that God will be with us until every day until the end. The whole Gospel of Matthew is the story of God with us, and that story carries on today. The quickest way to fail at joining into the mission of God is to think that you can do it on your own. The disciples only really began to join in God's mission on the day of Pentecost. The day they received that filling, that empowerment from the Holy Spirit. The same is true for us. We have not been left as orphans, rather God is with us. In all circumstances and in all things, we are invited to be alert and attentive to where God is with us and where God is already moving, to take the posture of people who are expectant that God is working in the world and offer our authentic, our divinely created selves into that situation to see more of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.